Amen. You may be seated. So um, we go from reading 50 verses at a time in the book of Acts to reading like six words in the book of Matthew. So here we go. You guys ready? Um, yeah, well, friends, good morning. This morning, we do officially start a new sermon series, which it sounds like all of you guys are all excited about because Acts took us a year and some change. And so now we're going to be walking through the Sermon on the Mount for the next 12 weeks, uh, which I'm personally excited about. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is just a great section of teaching that Jesus gives. And so I'm just uh, joy filled for what uh, the Lord is going to continue to do in the life of our heart in our minds as we hear from his word given to us. Friends, uh, a lot of you maybe have noticed uh, uh, as you walked into the sanctuary, we had a table that was right in front of the doors, kind of in your way, uh, and we gave you these little scripture journals. Uh, I see that a lot of you guys have those, and it's my great uh, just deep affection for you to just have a love and affection for God's word, because that's how God speaks to us. That's how he changes and moves in our hearts, in our lives, um, and so we just thought, man, what's a tangible way that we can continue to just... Uh, just give our church God's word so that they can continue to study and be in God's word with us. And we thought, hey, let's just give them some scripture journals where there's a section of just the actual text on the left, some notes section on the right. So you can prep with this. You can take that yours free, take it home. Uh, if you didn't grab one, feel free to grab one. There's more. Um, and then if we run out and you still need one, we can get you one. But we would love for you to just have that so you can just dive into God's word as we study together. And as you go home, if you're getting ready for city group and you guys are studying the text for the next week. You can go through it, jot some notes down. Or if you're in Citigroup and you want to jot some notes down, or if you're taking notes throughout the sermon, there's just a lot of different ways that you can utilize God's word so that it continues to just speak into your heart. So it's our just great hope that God would use the text uh, to just stir up your affections for who he is. So if you would, if you haven't opened up your Bible yet or your scripture journal, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Like Christine read for us, we're going to start in verse 1 and we'll just take on the first two verses verses together. But as you're flipping there, uh, I'd also have a question for you. How many of you have ever been to a Barnes and Noble? Okay, good, good amount. Um, how many of you have been for not just the coffee, but actually the books? Oh, yeah, that's good. Praise God. Uh, and so uh, as you walk through the store, you notice there's the different sections of different types of reading. There's the science fiction. You can go all the way to the back and you can find the books uh, that are more centered on who Jesus is and Christianity. You can walk uh, somewhere to find the comics. There's the music section. But as I walk through Barnes & Noble, I notice that one of the largest sections in the entire store is the self-help section. It just kind of blew my eyes to see how many books there are that are catered towards answering maybe the question of how can I be a better version of myself? Or the question might be, where is true life found? What exactly is human flourishing? So as I've noticed that the self-help section is one of the largest sections in all bookstores, libraries, wherever you go, it led me to start to do some research. I was curious, why is that such a, a big section of books? Like, are just a lot of people trying to write stuff, or is, is the market just saturated? What's happening? Well, as I did some research in 2018, can you believe this? In 2018, the book market value for this health help, the self-help uh, section was $800 million. That's absolutely wild. That's not even if you include audiobooks. If you include audiobooks, 
you add another $769 million that goes towards the self-help industry. So let me take that even into a larger scale. 2019, 2019, the self-help industry, uh, including everything, books, audio books, um, you're going to look at the seminars, speakers, events, weight loss programs, holistic institutes, all of that put together, $11.6 billion spent on the self-help section and the self-help uh, phenomenon that we're looking towards in life. Friends, what this shows me is that we are, craver, we are craving as people to answer the question, how can I be a better version of myself? We're constantly asking ourselves that. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't read any of those books or anything like that. Some of them can be damaging and opposite of what Christianity actually teaches, but I've read a few of them. I've read two of the top books that sold in the last year, this year already. And, uh, but I think we've gotten to a point to where we think if we buy a $12 book, or even better, we spend an extra $4 and have somebody read it to us, that it's going to lead to an absolutely long, crazy life transformation because we so badly want to know how do we flourish as humans? How do I become a better version of myself? How do I just get one step better to move past this hard space in life? But what if everything we thought about human flourishing, about growing, was completely opposite of what we truly thought? What if it was completely upside down and what we thought actually uh, became a better version of ourselves was something that never even crossed our minds? Something that was just completely opposite to what we've been dreaming and thinking of over the last several years. Well, this morning, as we start our new sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see through the King who speaks that human flourishing is not what we expect. So if you would, read with me one short verse uh, again, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the first point we see in the text this morning that we're going to see is that the king speaks. The king speaks. But before we really dive into this section, I want to give us context. Because we're jumping into the middle of a book, and it's just kind of like, okay, what's been happening? What's been going on? Where are we? What's the setting? Who's he talking to? All of that matters, because as we study scripture, if you just take your Bible, and you go to it in the morning or evening or afternoon, and you just kind of like toss it and flip it open, and you try to read it, God might use that. But at the same time, you're not really going to understand what's actually happening. You see, the scripture is given to us, and all the background matters, the history, the context, who he's talking to, who the audience is, what he's saying, the genre, all of that plays into exactly what the scripture is saying to us. And so it's important for us that we understand the context. So if you're uh, reading your Bible at home, and you're kind of just flopping into a new book, and you don't really know what's going on or what the background is, uh, check a study Bible, Google, hey, what's some context? Context for this passage, and it'll help uh, just illustrate and show you and teach you what actually is happening throughout the passage. But I want to give us some information that generally sets up the entire book of Matthew, because we won't just be studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount for 12 weeks. Actually, when we step into uh, December, we're going to go backwards and go into Matthew chapter 1 and read the birth narrative for Advent season. And so we're going to be in Matthew probably just as long as we were in the book of Acts. 
I know that maybe it makes you a little nervous. We'll take breaks. It's okay. We'll take breaks. Uh, but some things to know about the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, who can tell me who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew, see, what am I doing up here? You guys have got it. Um, anyway, a couple of things with that. Matthew's name was actually Levi. He was a tax collector. Um, and Jesus meets Matthew. He changes his name to Matthew. He becomes one of the 12 disciples. Now, the main audience that Matthew wrote this gospel to were Jewish Christians and non-believing Jews. This book was, this gospel was written between uh, 66 and 68 AD. One of the major themes throughout the gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. That's one of the main things we're going to see throughout the entire story, throughout the entire gospel of Matthew as we trace through it. Second theme that comes with it is the kingdom of God. So here's a a challenge I want to give for you. As we spend time in the Gospel of Matthew, you've got your little scripture journals. Every time you see the word king or kingdom, maybe draw a little crown above it. Underline it in maybe like a a certain color. And so every time you see it, you can kind of track how often is this word used. Because it comes up a lot, and it's important for us to kind of notice, why is Matthew using this so much? So there's just maybe a helpful tool for you. So now that that's kind of some broad, general context on the Gospel of Matthew, let's track how did we actually get to chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 1, flip back with me. Matthew chapter 1, we get this long genealogy, huge list of names that you read and you kind of go, why is this here? What's the point of this? Uh, We'll get more into that in December, but it's a genealogy of the family line of Jesus Christ, right? Pointing to Jesus, the king, being the son of David, who was once the king of Israel, right? So we see Matthew is trying to set up this theme of showing us that Jesus is the true king, that he is the one true king. Uh, Thousands of years are covered through that genealogy, and then it finally ends with the birth narrative of Jesus, right? And then in chapter 2, what do we see? We see the story of the wise men. They go to the King Herod, who's the king of the Jews, and uh, they tell him, hey, they've seen this star, so they, what does that mean exactly? And Herod's got to figure out and find out, hey, what does actually all of that mean together? And so they realize, oh, that's the sign that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, is born. So uh, then the wise men head forward and they go to see this baby, this little boy who has been born, who is the king of the Jews. And Herod kind of gets jealous about it. So he sends just this giant decree to massacre little children, little boys um, under the age of two, I think it is. And so Jesus' family then flees as refugees and they go to Egypt. They spend time in Egypt, and that gets us all the way uh, to chapter 3, where they then go to Nazareth, back home. And in chapter 3, we start to see, hey, it's, the script is flipped. We've fast-forwarded a couple of years, and now John the Baptist, who's actually Jesus' cousin, but John the Baptist comes proclaiming in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, track with me. It says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then we get this story where John the Baptist is interacting with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and it gets to the point to where Jesus kind of shows up. John baptizes Jesus. We see the dove descending, hear God speak over Jesus and say, this is my son with who I am well pleased. And that gets us all the way to chapter four. 
chapter 4, Jesus post-baptism uh, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts. Satan tempts him. Jesus kind of punks Satan with the word of God. And they just go back and forth for a little bit until Jesus finally uh, goes back into Galilee and his ministry finally begins. Seems like there's a lot of stuff happening here in this first section, but keep tracking with me because when his uh, ministry actually begins, what's the very first message he proclaims? Chapter 4, verse 17. What does Jesus say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Again, it's this constant theme that's just being put through to see. Jesus' primary first message that he ever preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right after that, after he just starts his ministry, we get this cool story of him meeting the first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, those four, first four guys kind of come in with them. And then in verse 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount, we get this really beautiful story of Jesus teaching over and over again. And what happens? Uh, people come to him, the sick, those who are hurting, those who are in pain, the afflicted, those with diseases, demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics. And Jesus cares enough to slow down and to heal them, to pray over them and just absolutely use the spirit of the power of the spirit of God to make them new, to restore them, to bring them to new life. And that leads us all to where there's these large crowds that are following Jesus, going from place to place to see this man, to be healed by this man. And that gets us to chapter five. A lot of stuff in there, heavy rolling. And we're going to keep going back because he continues to set this up, that this theme is out forward for us to see that Jesus truly is the king. Over and over again, we were going to read through just how Matthew paints this picture for us to show us that Jesus is not just a man who came and did some cool things. Jesus is not just a man who maybe healed some people and pulled off some magic tricks. Jesus is not just a man who said some things that offended people. But Jesus is the king of the universe, the creator, the God man who came to seek and save the lost. And so as we look at these first two verses, I want us to pause and slow down with this. Because if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount before, you maybe have just glossed through the first two verses and gotten to the greater chunk. You've maybe just read it and gone, okay, cool, big deal. Like, what's next? Actually, get me to the meat. What's actually Jesus teaching us? But what we see when we slow down in these first two verses is that Jesus truly is the king. So don't just skip over these first two verses because Matthew gave them to us intentionally by the, by the Spirit actually moving through him. So verse 1 here, we're finally into the text. Yay, yay, fun. Okay, cool. Verse 1, Jesus sees the crowds, goes up to the mountaintop, he sits down, his disciples come to him, and it seems so subtle and yet so beautiful. You think of God just kind of coming, hanging out, sitting in the grass, hanging out with his friends, teaching that... Just spending time with them. Doesn't seem like he's in a hurry to kind of run away, but he's actually just sitting with them. It's a beautiful picture for us to see. And sometimes uh, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we can quickly go through it fast. We can take the 15 minutes that it maybe takes to read the three chapters and just go on to the next thing. But how do we make sense of all of this? How do we make sense of verse 1 and why verse 1 is important to us? Why should we slow down here? Why are these so important? Well, we notice here he goes up to the mountain. 
It tells us he goes up to the mountain to speak to the crowds, right? To speak to the people who are following him. Where else in the Bible do we see God speak from mountaintops? Feel free to kind of shout it out. Sinai, right? Bunch of different places. I'll just list out a couple of them. Uh, Mount Arab. That's where Noah kind of lands. He is spared from the flood. God just moves in a miraculous way to save him and his family. And what's uh, Noah do? He builds an altar for God, right? He worships him there. Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham, he takes his son Isaac to go and sacrifice him. And in the middle of that, God provides a sacrifice so that, uh, so that way uh, Abraham doesn't actually have to sacrifice Isaac. Next mountain, Mount Carmel, right? Elijah, the prophet, he, he poured down just absolute fire against God's enemies on Mount, uh, Mount uh, Carmel. And then the one that really strikes out to me is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Now, before we just go into kind of the Jewish meaning of all, all the mountaintops, if you kind of think of ancient history and you even kind of start thinking of Greek history, what do you see? Mountaintops are where gods kind of speak from. Even in movies, if you go and watch them, that's kind of the, the picture that we're kind of given. And now we have the king of the universe speaking once again from a mountaintop here in the Sermon on the Mount. So in, with Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, if you want to flip back and read those chapters sometime. But Israel approaches the mountaintop. Moses speaks with God, and that's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. God gives his people the law from the mountaintop while speaking to them. And then there's a man who intercedes for the people in the middle of all of it. Because what's going on while God is speaking to Moses and giving him the law? Well, the people grew impatient. They said, it's taking too long. Let's take all of our gold together and let's make a golden calf and let's worship that golden calf. So God's anger just burns. He's extremely angry because they can clearly see. You just look up to the mountaintop. It's kind of like, whoa, there's something serious happening up there with Moses and God. And yet they build this golden calf. So God says, I'm going to strike them down. Just going to do away with them and going to start all over again. But Moses, this man who's walked with Israel, he intercedes for them. He steps into it. Sound a little familiar? God sending a man to intercede for a people? But why does all of this matter? Why does it all matter? Cool, Jesus has some things in common with Moses. Big whoop. Moses was a leader that Israel greatly looked up to. Even as he died and Hundreds of thousands of years passed. He was still a man that the people highly respected and cared for. God used Moses to free them from slavery in Egypt. God used Moses and spoke to him from the mountaintops. God used Moses and he gave him the law to the people. He was the man who led God's people to the promised land. Moses was someone that was greatly respected and looked up to by the people. So here's a question for you. Is there someone in your life that you really respect and look up to? Is there someone who maybe teaches you some things and you're like, man, that's just gold. That's perfect. That's, that's, it's totally right. Is there someone that you just greatly love and enjoy being around and anytime they're around you, they mentor you, you kind of take it all in and it just feels like it's absolutely everything and you completely respect that. Maybe it's because they've cared for you. Maybe it's because they've served you. Maybe it's because they have a PhD in whatever you're interested in and your philosophy really matches up. 
Maybe it's someone who mentored you. But the whole thing is that you look up to them because they have credibility. They've got a resume that kind of lines up to something that you say, this is worthy of me listening to. This is worthy of me actually respecting and thinking highly of that person. So as we kind of look at all of this, we see that Moses was someone that had credibility. Moses continued to uh, just be a great leader for the people of Israel. And so sure, Moses wasn't perfect though, because at the end of it, he struggled with anger. He was a good example, but he had his flaws. He murdered somebody. He was far from perfect. And so Israel, as they looked at Moses, they also knew that he was far from perfect. They knew that they had a Messiah who was still to come. Someone who was going to be perfect and bring them into the promised land. Someone who was going to restore all things and make everything new again for them as God had promised them. To be a redeemer. To be someone to come and usher them into the kingdom of God where God would dwell with his people. So here's why this matters. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is not just someone who had some things in common with Moses who had cool things kind of happen that lined up together. Sure, Jesus and Moses had a lot of things in common, right? As we even look at the first four chapters of the book of Matthew, what do they have in common with their lives? Jesus and Moses both have dreams connected to their births. Jesus and Moses were both persecuted as infants. Jesus and Moses both spent time in Egypt. They were tempted in the wilderness. They spent 40 days with fasting, and there's so much more between the two. But Matthew builds all of this up to show us that Jesus is like Moses, but the better Moses. Because the the similarity sets up the contrast. As we look at all of it, right, God sent Moses up to the mountain to hear from God. Now here with Jesus, Jesus goes up to the mountain to speak as God. God definitely spoke from the mountaintops on the Sermon on the Mount. And what Matthew's been doing throughout all this first four chapters up to this point, as we look at verse 1, we see that the king, the God of the universe, is going to the mountaintop to speak to his people. He's not just a man who did some things and said some cool things, but he is the God of the universe to continue to go and speak to his people. So keep going as we read the text here. What else does Jesus do? He sits. He sits down with his disciples as they come to him. So Jesus gives some words, right? He goes to the mountaintop. He sits down with his people, and we're told that he teaches to them in the middle of all of that. That description kind of points us to look at, hey, what did Jewish tradition kind of do? How did rabbis teach? Well, they would sit down to teach. And so we start to see he's not just building the fact that he's a king, but he's building the fact that he's a great teacher. He has something to say, something to listen to, something to actually take in from what he's done and what he's going to continue to do. So clearly, we see that Jesus is the one who sits on a throne. Because as you go forward in the book of Matthew, he continues to paint this picture of Jesus sitting down. If you look at Matthew chapter 19 and even Matthew chapter 25, there's some different moments where Matthew is again painting this picture of the kingdom of God and he's looking forward to when God restores at all things. And what he says about Jesus in those moments, what Jesus says about himself is that he sits on the throne of heaven. You see, we're getting a painted picture that Jesus is the enthroned king who speaks to his people from the mountaintops. So the question for us then is, will we listen? What does it mean for us? 
What's he actually going to say? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2. It's really short and sweet. Then he began to teach them, saying, little cliffhanger there for you. Friends, as we look at this, the second point in the text that I want us to see this morning from the text is that we are kingdom people. We are kingdom people. Verse 2, it tells us that he spoke to them. He opened his mouth, right? That's linked to a bunch of the different Psalms where it talks about God speaking from the mountaintops again. But before we get through all of this, we have to see who the audience is. Who is Jesus actually trying to talk to? Who's he really wanting to hear this message? Is he talking to the crowds? Is he talking to just the disciples? Is he talking to both? What's he really doing? Well, again, I want to go backwards before we answer that question. Chapter 4, we get some insight into what's been happening before all of this. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew's not too concerned about a perfect timeline. His gospel isn't super chronological, but he's doing something thematically for us to look and to see uh, for what Jesus teaches. uh, His first message he preaches again, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He cares about the kingdom greatly. Chapter 6, verse 23, what does Jesus say? But seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. He's prioritizing it. He's saying this matters. The kingdom is important and we should look to it. The kingdom matters to Jesus And we see that he continues to preach about the kingdom. He continues to preach repentance. But he not only talks about it, he shows us what it looks like. What does he do in that section right before the Sermon on the Mount? He heals people. He restores them. They're no longer lame with their legs. They no longer have disease. They're completely restored as people with no more pain, no more hurt, no more sorrows. Do you see what Matthew's doing? What's it look like? the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we see this great picture of what God is doing and what he's showing us in his word. He is painting the picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like and actually is for us today to see. Jesus wants to bring his kingdom. So as he begins his sermon in verses 1 and 2, the crowds follow him. They come from all over the place. These people are healed from their physical pain, and more people probably want to be healed as well. And it gets to this point to where he speaks. So who is he speaking to? Who is he speaking to? Uh, As we look at it, we kind of go, okay, maybe the crowds, maybe everybody, maybe the disciples. uh, Well, I look forward a little bit to kind of see, man, who, who is he really tailoring this message to? If you look a little later on in chapter 5, he starts speaking in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Because of that, I make my claim that I really believe he's talking to not not just the four disciples who were maybe there with him, but he's speaking to all those who will hear and actually receive the message. Not just uh, everybody who's there, but he knows that it will land with some people and it won't with others. And so he's speaking to those who are actually the salt of the earth, those who will actually receive the message. And if you start to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, You start reading chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. You might start to think, man, this just feels like a really long list of to-dos. 
It just feels like a bunch of stuff and pressure that's kind of on us as God's people. What if I mess up? What if I don't do it perfectly? What if I fail? See, friends, before Moses gave some laws, but here Jesus dives a little deeper and exposes it's not just about the law, but it's about the heart. It's about what he's actually doing in our heart, and that matters to Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is not about what we should do, but the Sermon on the Mount is about who we should be, about who we are as God's people, about what kingdom people are actually like. He paints this picture for us to see that this is what true human flourishing is. If Jesus is truly the king, what does the kingdom look like? And what do his disciples look like? What do his people look like? Because if we start to read the Sermon on the Mount, it starts to sound really upside down. It starts to sound like, isn't this backwards than what it's supposed to be? I thought it was the other way. See, friends, we're often trying to answer the question, what do I do to become a better version of myself? What do I do to be Alex version 2.0? What kinds of things do I need to start doing to win friends and influence people? What are the seven habits of effective people? How do I create atomic habits? What's the art of not caring? You versus you, version 2.0. But Jesus has something much greater for us. Jesus doesn't just have a better version of yourself, but he has a life-transforming relationship that he steps into and moves us from death to life. That he's created us each uniquely, carefully, individually, cares for each and every single one of us and knows us so much that he can count the hairs on our head. And this God has a different picture for us as kingdom people, not just people who do things, but people who are transformed to a completely new life. My guess is the majority of the room has a smartphone maybe in their pocket today, right? or has ever used a laptop, computer, iPad, something technology-wise, what happens maybe every couple of weeks or months? Update. Comes out and you get this little box that says, hey, a new version of your software is available. Would you like to download it? Would you like to download it? What happens if you just keep putting it off because you don't want to plug it in and wait the 30 minutes that it takes to actually update the software? It starts to slow down. It might crash at some point. You run into issues. Eventually, the company no longer supports the software update. How often is it that we look at our lives like a computer software? That we constantly want an update? We want to plug in and find something else to change and adapt to transition to whatever it is that's happening, a hill to climb, an adversity to overcome, suffering to walk through, transition that changes us. Just give me five more tips to get past through this thing. Whether it's moving from middle school to high school and trying to figure out, hey, how do I actually interact with people? Whether it's transitioning from high school to college and saying, I'm free. I don't have parents who tell me what to do anymore. Whether it's graduating from college and navigating how to adult because school never taught you how to do your taxes. And it's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm clicking the wrong box and I'm going to go to jail after this probably. <laughs> or whether it's moving from being single to marriage and it's just like, how do you live with someone? I have to do the dishes this way. 
That's not real, I promise. <laughs> or whether it's having children and navigating and trying to read six different books on how to be a parent and exactly the right uh, parenting structures, especially within uh, our Christian realm, right? We're always trying to figure out, how do I be the best godly parent to make sure my kid actually like, knows Jesus and looks perfect and does everything right so we have the best like, view of who we are? We're always looking to plug ourselves in for an $8 book or a $14 audiobook that's going to update our software and transform us to have new habits, to create better relationships, to understand how to navigate people and walk with them so that we think we're living in such a way that drives us to be a new person. What if Jesus had something much different for us? What if he had something that was way more different for us? Not version 2.0. What if it wasn't, if you follow these steps, you'll look like this? It's not transactional, friends. You see, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I guarantee you, you're going to be tempted to read this thing over the next couple of weeks and go, that seems transactional. That seems like if I do this, if I'm poor in spirit then the kingdom of heaven is mine. That seems like if I'm, if I'm rejoicing, then my reward is great in heaven. That seems transactional, Alex. What, what are you talking about? That seems like I do something. God does something. Well, friends, if you try to do all of this, I guarantee you, you're going to fail. You're going to fall face flat because you can't. But there's someone who did, and his name is Jesus. Because he's the only one who could actually achieve all of this in perfection. And he is the great example that we look to. He is the one that we worship and sing to. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you are oh so good. Because you were the one who took the transaction of our sin on. You were the one who came and died for us. Who took the pain and suffering that I rightfully deserved. Because my sin is my sin. And as I was, I was actually reading... Luke chapter 23 this week. It's the crucifixion, and I was blown away. I'm always blown away when I read that section. But I was blown away this week because there's this scene where Jesus is on the cross with the two thieves. And one of them is mocking him. And the other stops and says, what are you doing? We're, we're getting what we deserve. But that man... He's done nothing wrong. Friends, that's us. We've done all the wrong. Fallen short. And yet that man, he took the cross for us. For you. Each individually. Thinking of you. Knowing you. What good news is it that we have that king? who took all the pain and suffering so that we could be restored and made new, that it wasn't our transaction to do, that we don't have to sit here and try to appease him and say, God, if I'm just good enough, will you please just let me in? He doesn't work that way, friends. He said, I was good enough for you. Would you come to me? Free. Free gift of everlasting life. Not by something we do or say or clean ourselves up, but all by what he has done. And that's the king who speaks from the mountaintops. 
He was the one who properly defeated sin and death. And that is the king who reigns, who took the punishment for us so that we could have everlasting life with him. He defeated sin and death so that we could be kingdom people who look like this passage. By the power of the spirit that moves in us from the father, he sent the son through the death of the son. We could have everlasting life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we were transformed. We are changed. We are made new. We are restored. And we get to see the kingdom of heaven continue to move forward. Because as we look at this too, over the next 12 weeks, 11 weeks after this, we're going to start to think, man, I can't wait till the kingdom comes. I can't wait till it's all better. I can't wait till Jesus returns. What if it was now? What if the kingdom of heaven was being brought now? Look at the Lord's Prayer that he teaches us um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? How to pray. Chapter 6, verse 5. I'll just read it for us. He says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, seen by the people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go in private, shut the door, Pray to your father in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. Wait, yeah, it's further down, sorry. Uh, verse 9, therefore you should pray like this. Our father who is in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if we as kingdom people lived differently now? Because he's done something in our lives. Not because of what we're trying to do. Not because we read this and we go, okay, I got to do this and make sure I do that in order for him to be pleased. But it's actually a life transformation that he continues to do in our hearts, friends. This is not a to-do list to win him over. But this is him saying, this is what my kingdom is like. And this is what my kingdom people are like. Chapter 4, we get a picture of the crowds following Jesus. We get a picture of him restoring all of those people because there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrows, no more affliction, no more disease, none of that in the kingdom of God. And then he says, this is what my kingdom people look like in their hearts. Here's what they look like physically. Here's what they look like from the inside. Jesus is showing us that he is the king who speaks and that we are his kingdom people that are completely changed and transformed. The Sermon on the Mount ends this way. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as someone who had authority, not like their scribes. I'm often curious when I read the Sermon on the Mount, do the crowds hear and receive this and just simply keep coming back to Jesus so he heals them physically? Do they just keep staying because they don't want to have any more pain and they want him to do some cool little miracle in their life and then walk away from him? Or do they actually end up responding to what he has said? The question is the same for us this morning. Will we go to Jesus for just a free gift and then walk away? Or will we see him as the king who teaches, the king who speaks, 
the king who's enthroned, the king of the universe who brings us everlasting life, and we just want him. Friends, do we see that Jesus is the one who truly shows us what human flourishing is? Are we just picking up another $16 book at Barnes and Noble to get a quick tip and move on? To have seven more steps to become a better person. Jesus' invitation for us is to look at the Sermon on the Mount, to see the King who sits with his people, joy filled to be with them, gives them everlasting life, took the cross for them so that they could be with him for all of existence. The invitation for us this morning is to see the Sermon on the Mount and know the answer to what is human flourishing. And it's a life with Jesus. Let's pray. My Jesus, I know that you today, right now, you sit enthroned. God of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords. I know that right now you intercede on my behalf. That you intercede on our behalf. That you were a king who speaks from the mountaintops. You were a king who doesn't just sit back, but you actually stepped down into the mess. You were not like other kings. But you are a great king. One who deserves all worship. One who we should respond to and hear and see. My Jesus, would you just continue to transform us into your kingdom people? Would you heal people of affliction and pain and suffering? Would you allow us to see it physically with our eyes? And if even you don't move that way, Jesus, would we see it happen in our hearts? Would you transform us to not just want to look at you as someone to just pay $16 for and get a Bible out of it and to read some things and try to clean ourselves up, Jesus, but would we actually be transformed by the power of your spirit? My God and my King, would we look like kingdom people? Would we bring the kingdom of heaven to this place? We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.